Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. I hope everyone listening is doing well and keeping healthy. We have a great episode for you this week, taking a deep dive, really, into Israel's security policy. And the big question is, has there been more continuity or more change since the new Bennett Lapid government took over from former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Um, on issues like the Iranian nuclear threat, Lebanon, and the Palestinians. Uh, really, to help us unpack these very important issues, we have a terrific guest with us this week, uh, Amos Arel, the veteran military correspondent for Haaretz. Amos, good morning. Hi, Mary. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Uh, it's our pleasure, really, Amos. Uh, we have a lot to get into in our episode today, uh, but I really want to start with Iran. Um it's a big issue in recent weeks, uh, as it has been now for many years and many uh, decades going back. To my mind, if we're talking about Bibi Netanyahu, he's been warning us about uh, the Iranian nuclear threat, compared it to Nazi Germany. He's compared the 2015 nuclear deal uh, signed by former U.S. President Barack Obama to the Munich Agreement, no more and no less. Uh, he's threatened to bomb Iran, and Bibi still keeps talking about the Iranian threat. Uh, and yet now we're hearing from Israeli officials, uh, including the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, uh, that Iran's nuclear program is really at its most advanced stage ever. Uh, so Amos, set the table for us. Uh, what happened? Why this gap between Netanyahu's rhetoric and what we're ostensibly seeing on the ground in terms of Iran's nuclear program? Uh, well, first of all, we'll always have Iran. Um, Iran has always been the best excuse uh, for Israeli uh, politicians, first and foremost among them Benjamin Netanyahu, to divert attention of the Israeli public from uh, domestic issues, um, domestic pressures, uh, political debates, and so on, to some kind of uh, strategic, historic uh, development. And Netanyahu, I, I think the main difference between Netanyahu and Bennett uh, doesn't... Uh, do so much uh, regarding their positions uh, on Iran, but the change in rhetoric. Uh, Bennett, although he uses every now and then some, uh, um, you know, some outspoken and uh, hawkish uh, rhetoric, he, he tends not to talk in uh, um, terms from history. He doesn't, um, you know, allude so much to the Holocaust and, and so on. Uh, he doesn't uh, describe the Iranians as Nazis uh, as often as his uh, predecessor did. Now, the main debate uh, right now between the two of them has to do with what happened between, I'd say, 2018 to 2021, right. until um, Bennett replaced uh, Netanyahu. As you very well uh, remember, uh, Netanyahu uh, was, of course, against the JCPOA, signed in 2015. And the first thing he did once uh, Trump was elected American president was to apply pressure on Trump uh, to withdraw from uh, the agreement with Iran. And this, of course, succeeded in 2018. Um, apparently, what we know now is that Netanyahu was hoping for one of two possible scenarios. Mm -hmm. One is that those extreme sanctions uh, that uh, the Trump administration applied over Iran would finally lead uh, uh, to a collapse of the regime and that uh, in the end, Israel would have what it wanted and the Iranian and nuclear plan would be uh, stopped, right. halted to the ground. Maximum uh, pressure. The second was that, that under this maximum pressure, the Iranians would make a mistake provoke Iran, and Trump would go uh, crazy. Trump would go Trump uh, <laughs> over uh, Iran and, and, and hit uh, uh, the, the Iranian nuclear project 
and help Israel uh, in that way. It turned out that none of these uh, two uh, events actually happened. And the last time that the Americans actually struck um, a, a strategic Iranian target was the time they assassinated General Qasem Soleimani in um, January 2020. Later on, COVID happened and a whole um, you know, the whole international uh, debate or discussion over Iran changed completely. It was no longer uh, a top priority for anybody but maybe Netanyahu. Um, so what actually happened was that after uh, the American decisions to withdraw from the agreement, the Iranian gradually began uh, being in breach of the uh, agreement themselves, mm -hmm. and they gradually uh, returned to enriching uranium. By now... Um, they passed one of the thresholds. They have, if I'm not mistaken, 25 kilos of uh, enriched uh, uranium to the level of 60%. This is almost halfway to producing a nuclear bomb. Of course, later on, they need to, uh, um, to move forward with the uh, military aspects of the plan, with turning this into a warhead. So suddenly, in the last few months, what we now know is that Iran is perhaps closer to achieving the final goal of a, a nuclear weapon closer than it was in 2015 or 2017 or any time right. um, that we can uh, recall. And what uh, Bennett is now uh, blaming Netanyahu for is, look, what you did was apply pressure on Trump. Trump uh, applied pressure on the Iranians, but it backfires. Actually, the Iranians are now closer to a bomb than before. And what I found out, says Bennett, once I became prime minister, is that you neglected the whole issue of an Israeli uh, military um, um, option against Iran because you didn't give the IDF and especially the Israeli Air Force the right orders in order to prepare themselves uh, for the possibility that this fails and that the Iranians, in fact, would move forward mm -hmm. uh, towards a, a bomb. And what Jen Bennett began hinting about two months ago, and now it's, he's, he's been saying that quite bluntly, is that he's correcting Netanyahu's mistakes. Netanyahu was all about rhetoric. Netanyahu uh, kept threatening the Iranians and pressuring Trump, but didn't do uh, anything uh, that was actively uh, needed. And only now is the current uh, government preparing the military for the possible scenario in which Israel has to react. Of course, this has a, the outcome has a lot to do with the events on the international stage, what the Biden administration would do and so on. But for the time being, you're saying at least I'm preparing the military options, something that Netanyahu neglected to do. So that's a great uh, setting the table scenario, uh, taking us back and then up to the present day. And it's a good transition to the current day. Uh, oddly enough, coincidentally, uh, Biden's Iran envoy, uh, Rob Malley, is actually here in Israel for high-level meetings. Uh, Mali is meeting with Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, uh, other senior Israeli officials. Uh, but he's not meeting with the prime minister. Uh, now, you've written about this uh, extensively in recent weeks. Um, is there actually a difference of opinion at the very top of the Israeli system between, say, where Bennett is in terms of the Iranian nuclear program and, say, other officials that may, uh, may be, let's say, more amenable to the line being pushed by Rob Malley and the Biden administration, which is a return to actually negotiations with an eye to a renewed deal with Iran? I think there's a slight difference between De Bennett's position and uh, his partner's uh, positions. Um, I'm, I'm referring especially to Lapid, the foreign minister, and Gantz, the defense minister. They might be slightly more uh, moderate, if you'd like, uh, 
regarding the Iranian issue, and they might be more willing to accept the fact that the United States is now moving forward on the diplomatic uh, channel rather than um, threatening um, Iran with the use of uh, force. Uh, so Bennett has kept quiet over Mali's meeting, but the fact that he's uh, refusing or uh, uh, avoiding a meeting with the envoy is probably, I, I'm sure that this has been noticed uh, in Washington mm-hmm. um, as well. But other than that, I think the general, the growing sense among most Israeli analysts and decision makers is a sense of, um, I'd say, slight disappointment with the current administration. Uh, One official I talked to a few days ago said that the Biden um, administration treats diplomacy as a religion, not as a possible tool Mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, discussing uh, with Iran. It's quite clear for quite some time that the uh, current administration wants to resume negotiations and that it was only waiting for the uh, new president in Tehran, for Raisi, to say that he's willing to do so. Uh, What Israel was expecting, it isn't said publicly in so many words, but it's quite clear, uh, was for the United States to show some more strength. Maybe Washington has no other option but to return to the uh, uh, diplomatic route, but it still needs to um, show some uh, force in the region. And we had two recent examples which were quite frustrating from an Israeli point of view. On October 21st, if I'm not mistaken, there was a drone attack, uh, presumably by Iranian uh, Shiite militias in Syria that hit the Tanif base, the American base in Tanif, which is uh, close to the Jordanian and especially the Iraqi border. So it's in East Syria. Some friendly state in the region uh, gave the Americans a prior warning, so the uh, soldiers were all ev- evacuated from the base. But this was quite an attack. This was quite a provocation. It's assumed that it's by Iran, and yet the Americans did not react in any aggressive mm-hmm. way uh, towards this. Uh, two or three weeks later, um, the, the new Iraqi prime minister's uh, home was attacked by similar drones again. It's assumed that this that the Iranians were behind this through uh, Shiite militias, and then again, the uh, United States may be saying something, but it's doing nothing regarding that. So, but, you know, the the bottom line of for all of this is that Israel is is quite worried and quite frustrated. I'm sure that if you would have um, um, interviewed analysts in uh, either Riyadh or in uh, um, or in the UAE you probably would have uh, uh, heard the same kind of response. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody understands that the, the Middle East, and especially Iran, are not top priority uh, for the Biden administration. As one Israeli senior official um, has expressed it, it said uh, it's all about the three Cs, climate, China, and COVID. <laughs> Other than that, uh, the Americans are not really interested. Uh, but then again, even if you accept that the, the priorities have changed and that this uh, pivot towards the, the the Far East that was already announced under the Obama administration right. is finally happening, and that China is the top priority uh, in front of uh, everything else. Even if you accept that, the Middle East um, remains, um, you know, a possible uh, area of concern for, especially for the countries who are actually stuck here, but also I, I would assume for Western Europe, for the U.S. and so on. And the Israelis, and I, I would assume that the Saudi reaction is quite the same, are worried that the United States is not showing enough uh, strength when it deals with the Iranians. And that this is quite a clear uh, message 
to everybody else in the region. And of course, we've seen that already. We've seen um, beginning of uh, direct talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia for the first time in I don't know how many years. We've seen uh, the Jordanian king uh, talk on the phone with uh, President Assad. This hasn't happened for almost a decade. We've seen uh, um, some conservative Sunni states in the region gradually willing to accept the return of the Assad regime as a legitimate partner, something that was unheard of or, or, or couldn't be accepted uh, a few years back. Mm -hmm. And I think that everybody is on their toes uh, watching what the Iranians are doing and especially being worried about the American response. On top of everything else, Mali, among administration officials, is considered uh, someone sort of a relic from the Obama administration, somebody who was even more moderate on these issues uh, than um, other uh, senior officials. And this is why the, the, the Israeli response uh, towards him may be a little bit cold. Right. Uh, we should mention that even Rob Malley, uh, in recent, let's say, weeks, has given interviews and has expressed frustration at the Iranian position vis-a-vis -vis a renewal of any nuclear talks. So, uh, maybe that's an indication, too, of uh, loss of patience, uh, even inside the Biden administration, even in Washington, as to the prospects of any renewed deal. Uh, but I wanted to go back to what you said in terms of the Israeli frustrations here on the ground uh, at the perceived lack of U.S. resolve. Um, you know, I've heard it from senior Israeli officials that they wanted a, a real demonstration of power vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran to actually send a message that uh, while uh, their preferred route is the diplomatic route. Uh, when they say all other options are on the table, uh, they actually mean it. And from what you've told us now, uh, the Israeli officials don't actually believe that the Iranians believe that the U.S. actually means it. Um, so in terms of, let's say, the Israeli efforts right, to increase leverage and to send a message to Iran, we've seen, and you wrote about it this morning in Haaretz, uh, Naval exercises, ground exercises, uh, air exercises by the Israeli military, along with the U.S. military and, and other regional uh, militaries. Uh, how did you put it? There's so much messaging that the message has been almost lost, right? We, I've almost lost track of how many military exercises have been going on in recent weeks. Uh, so almost in your mind, is this uh, actually genuine preparations by Israel for any future mil military strike on Iran? Or is it really, uh, you know, Israel trying to reestablish leverage vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran on the part of the Americans? I think that it's mostly about flexing muscles right now, but there's no direct uh, sense of an immediate threat from Iran or from anybody else. Iran is resuming negotiations. It's not interested in a direct military confrontation with Israel. Neither is Hezbollah, which is extremely busy with the huge domestic crisis uh, going on in Lebanon. Uh, we'll probably talk about Gaza later, but Israeli uh, policy towards the Gaza Strip is to try as much as possible to calm things down through all kinds of uh, confidence-building measures and uh, mm -hmm. so on. Uh, so I, I think that uh, some of this is flexing muscles, some of this is preparing the army for a, a future um, scenario in which things go terribly wrong on one of the fronts. And, and you need, of course, to, to exercise and to train your forces, especially the reserve units, which mm -hmm. were not in, engaged in anything for the last two years, mostly because of uh, COVID. 
but this isn't about an immediate sense of a, um, um, you know of a coming uh, war. This is not the case. We've been through that in a, a few summers uh, ago. For you know, it, it happened uh, a, a few times. This is not the case we're seeing right now. I think the Americans, uh, while trying to 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 appease the Israelis a little. Uh, were willing to to um, in, be involved in those exercises. There's a small marine unit uh, uh, which has been training in uh, Tzelim with the in the Negev with the Israeli ground forces in the last uh, two weeks, and we've seen this uh, quite uh, impressive naval drill that involves the uh, Fifth Fleet with uh, Israeli ships and with also with ships from the. Um, um, United Arab uh, Emirates and uh, from Bahrain, two partners in the Abraham Accords and the new normalization uh, agreement. So mm-hmm. this is, you know, it's nice to see uh, some of this is even uh, may even be called an, an important precedent, and it, it may be sending a message to Iran. But I think the Iranians are well aware of the larger picture, and that is, as we said, Americans um, gradually um, um, disengaging from the region, turning their uh, sites and their uh, interests, uh, uh, mostly to China and what's going on in uh, East uh, Asia, and not really willing to engage on a military level with anybody. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, um, change the, the actual uh, situation too much, I think. So it doesn't really move the dial in terms of uh, where Iranian decision makers are. Uh, if you were a Israeli decision maker, what would you want the U.S. to actually do? Is it as simple as just bomb something in the Middle East to actually show that you're willing to uh, to still bomb something in the Middle East? Look, it's it's hard to tell, and it depends which Israeli uh, official. And it's uh, I, I think that Israelis should always be wary of um, giving the United States too many uh, um, too much advice that may be perceived as an attempt to 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 order the Americans to do something. Mm-hmm. I think that we 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 all remember the outcome of uh, uh, the first and then the second Gulf Wars. And the um, um, the blame towards, especially towards uh, Jewish American officials, of uh, uh, be, being perceived as being behind this and uh, forcing the United States to to, to uh, fight Israel's wars and so on. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, um, involved in sending uh, American boys uh, to war. This is not Israel's uh, role. Uh, in the region. I think that Israel could um, politely express its concerns regarding the fact that the uh, Americans have been too, so slow and so passive about those uh, provocations. And it's never a, um, a good thing to be so passive uh, regarding uh, Iranian provocations, um, especially considering the current uh, regime. Um, I see just won the elections in uh, June or July. He's considered uh, uh, much more of a hawk uh, and a conservative uh, than his uh, predecessor, uh, and this is this is sending a message already. Um, I, I would assume that the Biden, from an Israeli point of view, the Biden administration needs to uh, react more quickly, and especially when there are um, direct uh, provocations against it, to 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 flex muscles at least. And and, and this hasn't happened. Uh, we can't expect the the current administration to behave like the mm-hmm. previous one. And, you know, personally, I wasn't a fan of the, the Trump administration. I felt that they made so many right. mistakes on uh, the, the, the foreign, um, on foreign policy as well. I'm not sure that the 
actually pulling out of the agreement was such a, a smart idea, although uh, Netanyahu uh, kept pushing Trump uh, to do so. So we have to understand that the Biden administration is different, that the mood in Washington has changed. And I would, in retrospect, I would even doubt the, the possibility that Trump was ever about to do something um, actively about the Iranian nuclear project. There's a, a difference between assassinating a certain general, which was you know, something that Israel recommended probably that the, the United States uh, would do. And I think that was quite effective at fighting uh, Iranian involvement uh, in the region. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between doing something so specific and, and, and you know, hitting accurately a specific target and, and, and taking a, a bad guy, so to speak, out and actually uh, being involved in a full-scale war which would attempt to destroy all uh, Iranian nuclear sites. I can understand why the Biden administration is not uh, keen on anything uh, of that sort. Uh, but there's still quite a gap between uh, doing nothing and doing everything, and I'm not sure that the Americans have filled that gap or uh, are willing to um, you know, maneuver in between those uh, two poles of activity and inactivity. Mm -hmm. So, final question on Iran. Uh, from your conversations with senior current and also former Israeli officials, is there a sense of almost uh, seller's remorse at the fact that Netanyahu pushed Trump to withdraw from the original nuclear deal with Iran? That in retrospect, maybe Israel uh, is seeing the more positive aspects of the non-proliferation agreement that Obama brokered, uh, that it bought Israel uh, X number of years to prepare for future scenarios, and that the withdrawal actually accelerated and made more imminent the Iranian nuclear threat. Is that a sense that you're getting? Well, uh, you, you know the old Americans saying that you stand where you sit. I think um, a lot of this has to do with your prior uh, thoughts uh, on this matter. Um, mm. on, this is true for most of the ongoing debates. Every development is always used to prove that I was right all those years ago and that you were wrong. So I would have to say that more or less the same for this. We haven't seen any remorse uh, from Netanyahu. Netanyahu keeps saying that he did the right thing and that it's actually Bennett who's neglecting to fight for the uh, security and the safety of Israeli citizens. Um, I think that those generals who were more uh, doubtful about Netanyahu's uh, positions are now uh, coming out of their hiding places and are willing to say this more publicly. You remember that between... In 2015, there was quite a debate. Uh, some officials and some, uh, especially some previous officials, uh, came out against Netanyahu and thought that he was doing a mistake going to Congress to speak at Capitol Hill uh, against uh, Obama and so on. Others uh, supported his... Uh, his positions. Uh, in 2018, when Netanyahu was yet considered very strong and there was no direct threat uh, of him losing office, then, um, you know, the, the, the generals who were still in uniform uh, did not dare um, uh, offend him or criticize him publicly. I, you could hear some voices at that time uh, asking what good would do, uh, this do us. But Netanyahu at that time was at the height of his powers, mm -hmm. um, quite full of hybris, I think. Um, also, he was convinced that he would uh, he, that he could uh, persuade Trump to do almost anything. Remember the, the deal of the century. Remember Netanyahu's advisors promising in early 2020 uh, annexation in the West Bank, mm -hmm. annexation of settlements uh, next Sunday and so on. Right. Um, nothing of this um, uh, sort has actually materialized. In my view, it's good that uh, 
none of this actually uh, happened. But at that time, Netanyahu felt that he was the king of the world. He was still quite strong in his position as the Israeli prime minister. He was still fighting the uh, judiciary uh, involving his trials and, and so on. And he still assumed that Trump would get reelected and that he could get anything he wants from Trump. Um, this didn't happen the way Netanyahu uh, um, expected it uh, to happen. And now we have to face the, the consequences, which are quite different than before. Right. Uh, we should also remember all the uh, pre-election gifts that were showered on Netanyahu by the Trump administration uh, uh, throughout the course of four successive elections in the last two years. So uh, Netanyahu may have had good reason to think that he could uh, get many, many more things from uh, from Trump. But like you said, not uh, not up to and including a strike on Iran's nuclear program. Look, at least, Neri, at least one of these gifts was quite useful for Israel. I'm talking about the Abraham Accords. I think mm-hmm. that when future historians would uh, try and uh, estimate or judge uh, Netanyahu's uh, achievements, I think that the Abraham Accords, uh, the normalization with uh, Bahrain and, and the uh, Emirates, and also the improvement of ties with many other Arab countries in the region, this would be one of his greatest achievements. And, and, and this was um, achieved thanks to uh, American involvement and thanks to President Trump. Other than that, many of the other decisions were quite dangerous, mostly uh, when they tried to push forward with this whole um, um, charade of um, um, annexate, uh, annexing the um, Israeli settlements in the West Bank and so on. Thankfully, this didn't happen. Uh, agreed. Uh, the so-called deal of the century could have uh, uh, could have worked out very poorly if Netanyahu had actually uh, moved forward with it and was able to move forward with it. Um, Amos, I want to shift slightly and talk about something you mentioned briefly, which was Lebanon. Uh, To my mind, when you talk to senior uh, IDF officials, everyone talks about the Iranian strategic threat and the immediacy of, say, uh, another war in Gaza. But really, when you get down to it with, with these officials and these officers, uh, their big fear is the next big war in Lebanon, uh, the third Lebanon war, so to speak. Um, and you wrote uh, this morning and also in, in recent months about the growing, say, suspicion slash alarm in Israeli military circles about uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon actually getting advanced weapons uh, like precision guided missiles and uh, anti-aircraft systems. Um, can you tell us where those fears actually stand at the moment? Because I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, that in your previous reporting, uh, it seems like Hezbollah is actually succeeding in getting these various weapon systems into Lebanon. Look, there's a a common saying in recent years that the IDF uh, talks about Iran, prepares for Lebanon, and and eventually fights in Gaza. And this happens every (laughs) every few years, and it happened last May, um, this year, Operation Guardian of the Walls. Lebanon, we have to admit, um, not much has happened between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon since 2006. At that time, it seemed like a great Israeli failure. And I would uh, um, die on that hill claiming that, you know, that the uh, both the IDF and the Israeli government, the only Olmert government uh, at that time, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, um, did not, uh, they underperformed uh, during that war. But right. considering considering all the years that have passed, uh, it's quite clear that there's a sort of a, a, a mutually assured deterrence between Israel and Hezbollah. Both sides are stepping uh, are quite careful not to step on the enemy's toes and, and trying to to avoid a future war. And we've seen escalations 
quite a few times, and it was quite uh, clear that Israel, um, you know, uh, stepped on the brakes in order to prevent uh, a new war. Uh, this is the reality for quite some time. If you'd like, we'll talk more about the uh, domestic uh, situation in Lebanon in a minute. Then again, what we have, what the, the IDF uh, occupies itself uh, with um, uh, in the recent years is mostly what they call uh, in Hebrew Mabam, which is acronym for the uh, uh, operations between wars. And this is mostly right. about attacking Iranian uh, targets or Iranian affiliated targets all over the region, mostly in Syria, but there have been reports of uh, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, and so on. When you talk to the um, senior IDF officials, they divide this um, uh, campaign, which is quite excessive. I mean, this is happening. Uh, it, it's quite intensive. I'm sorry. Uh, this is happening mm -hmm. almost every week now. There are uh, uh, Israeli strikes, usually not declared formally as Israeli strikes, but everybody in the region knows uh, who's behind that. And we've seen dozens and dozens of airstrikes, sometimes uh, 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 missiles uh, uh, being surface-to-surface uh, -surface. Surface -surface missiles uh, being launched as well. And those were, uh, those were mainly uh, targeting two different um, interests. One is the Iranian mil military entrenchment in Syria, Iranian bases, mm -hmm. uh, Iranian systems, uh, Shiite militia bases, and so on. This, according to the IDF, has been quite successful. Uh, what, they, what they're saying is that, look, if we hadn't acted, the Iranians would be all over the place. And the fact that we're quite successful at hitting those targets means that they're uh, very far away from the goals they wanted to achieve. The second part, which is more problematic, is hitting those convoys or uh, vehicles. Or sometimes, um, sometimes it's people uh, traveling on planes and so on who keep smuggling uh, ultra-sophisticated weapons uh, to Hezbollah. And now gradually, in the last few weeks... In Lebanon. Uh, in Lebanon. And gradually, in the last few weeks, I've heard admissions that the situation there is not as, uh, as good as we would have hoped. Uh, that first, um, the Iranians are now close to... Uh, the Iranians and Hezbollah are now close to achieving their goal of actually having production uh, sites uh, for improving rockets and turning them into accurate, uh, precise, uh, precision-guided missiles. And secondly, mm -hmm. that perhaps Iran is gradually succeeding at uh, smuggling anti-aircraft uh, systems, part by, by part, bit by bit. But this is a growing concern uh, for the Israeli Air Force regarding its freedom of activity, uh, um, either hitting targets or collecting information, flying over targets uh, around Lebanon. So this is quite concerning. In the long run, this could be quite um, a problem for Israel, especially if uh, what you described as a third uh, Lebanon war uh, actually breaks out. Mm -hmm. Right now, um, as we've said, the, the, the domestic situation in Lebanon is so bad that I think uh, it, it's hard to assume that Hezbollah can afford any kind of uh, direct military escalation with Israel. People in Lebanon are looking for the, their food for the next day, are wondering about electricity. Doctors and nurses are leaving uh, the country in growing numbers. Um, and these are the main problems, and Hezbollah cannot afford fighting with Israel. I don't think it will divert, divert attention 
of the Lebanese uh, public. In the long run, we have a growing problem concerning Hezbollah. And of course, this is what the Iranians were planning all along, especially after 2006. The whole Hezbollah arsenal, which is now, the Israelis assume that this contains around 130,000 uh, missiles, rockets, and, and mortar bombs, which mm -hmm. could hit every spot in Israel. All of this was planted in Lebanon in order uh, uh, to, to threaten Israel and in order to deter Israel from striking at uh, Iran's nuclear sites. Right. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a forward operating base for Iran to deter Israel, but uh, as you know and as you've written, and I've heard this as well, that uh, for Israeli decision makers, uh, the actual introduction of these uh, advanced weapon systems into Lebanon uh, for Hezbollah especially the precision-guided missiles, is in and of itself uh, a red line and is viewed as a strategic threat by, uh, by Israeli officials. Uh, yes, but it became a, a pink line, if you'd like, uh, gradually. Um, mm -hmm. Israel kept insisting that it would not allow those weapons to enter Lebanon. As, as far as we can tell, some of these weapons and some of these systems are inside Lebanon by now. Uh, on top of this, there are some capabilities of... Uh, industrial production of these uh, systems, mainly uh, those uh, GPS-guided uh, rockets. And this is becoming right. a growing concern. In the past, if you remember, five, six years ago, the Israelis were saying, well, there might be a few pre uh, precision-guided missiles in Lebanon, but prob probably a dozen, something like that. By now, they're talking of uh, mm -hmm. dozens and maybe hundreds. But this is a different uh, situation altogether. Nobody admits that publicly. But this is an, an, an ongoing uh, trend, and it's not working uh, to Israel's favor. I'm glad you brought that up, because I noticed you actually wrote that in one of your articles uh, a few months ago. And I saw that number of hundreds, potentially hundreds, of precision-guided missiles in Lebanon. And I said, wow, that's, uh, that's a real escalation. Because like you said, we've heard, uh, you know, they were saying tens of precision-guided missiles, dozens, uh, but nothing like a hundreds. Uh, like you, uh, like you had reported, um, Amos. Uh, we can't neglect the Palestinian issue as much as uh, many Israeli officials and many even Israeli security officers uh, would like to kind of shunt it aside and focus more on Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, but I want to get your thoughts on the record so our listeners can can hear it. Uh, the new Bennett Lapid government has made a big show of its new policy and I use new, maybe in quotation marks, of shrinking the conflict vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians and really the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Um, are you impressed by this new, uh, this new policy, this new paradigm of shrinking the conflict? We've seen uh, various confidence-building measures uh, introduced by the new Israeli government in recent months, uh, more work permits for Palestinians, uh, increased, uh, say, access and movement for uh, Palestinian security forces, uh, they floated a loan to the Palestinian Authority, and, and so on and so forth, and more uh, is being talked about for future. Uh, are you really impressed this is like a real change in Israeli policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority? So let's divide the discussion between Gaza and the West Bank. Okay. Perhaps we should start with Gaza. Um, Gaza, we mentioned that the latest round of violence happened in mid-May, it was called uh, Guardian of the Walls, and as usual, both sides declared victory uh, when this was uh, over. Um, I see the, the, the current government's uh, policy regarding Gaza as um, um, a, a 
directly continuing Netanyahu's um, uh, policy. Mm -hmm. And as usual, there's quite a gap between the public rhetoric, rhetoric which is uh, you know tough and hawkish and so on, and what we're actually willing to do. And I think both uh, Netanyahu and now Bennett are actually trying to appease Hamas by, um, you know, Netanyahu sent uh, allowed uh, um, suitcases of uh, uh, Qatari cash uh, to uh, Gaza. Uh, Netanyahu and later on Bennett uh, declared that this wouldn't be uh, allowed uh, in the future. But now what they're trying to do, they haven't solved this completely, as you know, but this is a $30 million sum, which is supposed to reach Gaza every, uh, every month. month. And, and um, help Hamas somehow uh, keep its head above water. 20 million of this was already solved, and I, I think there will be a solution for the last third of the money. Mm -hmm. On top of this, um, Bennett is doing everything in his power to keep uh, Gaza calm, and he's now um, taking, you know, uh, uh, he's now using the current relative calm to, to go slightly more forward than Netanyahu by allowing Palestinian workers uh, from Gaza to work in Israel. The, already, the, the number um, um, has been uh, increased. Uh, is up to 10,000, which is much higher than uh, under Netanyahu. And Hamas has already requested 30,000 permits. So this is, you know, continuing Netanyahu's uh, policy, but moving forward with that. And it's easier for both of these right-wing politicians to actually deal with Hamas because Hamas is not demanding any kind of a peace uh, agreement or any kind of um, Israeli concessions over land, something which would be impossible for both Netanyahu and, and Bennett uh, uh, to do. Mm -hmm. So Gaza, I don't see much of a difference. Bennett attacked Netanyahu, kept uh, uh, um, criticizing him for the way he handled the operation in 2014, kept saying that he was appeasing Hamas later on, kept recommending a tougher stance against Hamas. But actually, when he came into power, uh, you know, Ariel Sharon's old saying that, uh, that the things you see from here, you from there, you do right. not see from here. Once he became uh, prime minister, he quoted a famous Israeli uh, song. The same goes for Bennett. And Bennett, I, I assume Bennett was quite a cynic, knew that already. But it's quite true. Uh, when Once he became prime minister, he behaves uh, rather um, in a rather similar way to what uh, Netanyahu uh, did uh, before. Mm -hmm. Regarding the West Bank, it's harder to tell. Again, two um, um, tough right-wing politicians, both of them do not have a lot of space to maneuver when it comes to actual uh, discussions, direct uh, discussions over a, a future peace agreement with the Palestinians. And the general consensus in Israel right now is that there's this is impossible to do. Uh, Abbas is turning he actually turned 86 uh, yesterday. I hope you said Mazal Tov. I, uh, I will wish, Abbas, him, we'll wish him happy birthday officially. Yeah. At, at, at this age, people do not tend to, to, to give up on their principles. He's not going uh, to, um, you know, to, to give major concessions to Israel or any future uh, deal. So the, the general sense in Israel is always, there's this always a, sort of a catch-22 going on. Um, if there is no fighting, then there's no need or no urgency to reach a, a final agreement with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And if fighting breaks, then you should never give in under military pressure. So this is always the excuse for the different governments to do nothing. Right now, things are relatively calm. 
Um, there are issues, um, Palestinian buildings in uh, Area C, uh, um, Israeli uh, settlements and outposts, um, violence on the ground every now and then between uh, settlers on the hilltops and, and, and their Palestinian neighbors. But other than that, the, the Palestinian conflict does not seem to be top priority. Mm-hmm. I think that gradually, mostly because of Gantz and the left-wing uh, parties, Bennett is willing to 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 make more to to announce more uh, confidence building measures with the PA, mm-hmm. but he could only go that far. He's always afraid of what's happening on his right. Uh, Shaked, for instance, inside the government could be uh, could could be uh, a threat to him uh, regarding uh, what would be perceived as uh, you know as uh, concessions. Ayelet Shaked. Uh... The the interior minister and his longtime partner, who's actually more hawkish on these issues than than he is, for I would assume for cynical political reasons, but that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's he fears uh, criticism from Netanyahu, from Smotrich, and in the opposition and others. So there's there's a limit to what can be done. I think what Israel would try to do is to maintain security cooperation uh, with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, to allow all kinds of uh, uh, economic gestures, but mostly uh, to keep things as they are. The, the usual question is, will the Palestinians be willing to play this kind of game? Or what, at what time would they be uh, too frustrated? And a lot of this has to do, of course, with domestic stability. How stable is the Abbas regime? How dangerous is Hamas uh, to the Fatah uh, government in uh, Ramallah? And we've seen the latest escalation in May, which I've mentioned, mm-hmm. began by Hamas deciding that it's actually defending Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, that it from Gaza would be involved at the uh, tensions uh, on the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem. So we see uh, Hamas trying to undermine uh, the PA's uh, authority, authority in, in the West Bank. And I think that this would um, continue. Uh, there, there has been... Um, a development about, I think it was about two months ago, that was hardly noticed, especially by the international media. And this is that the Shabak, Israel's uh, internal uh, security service, succeeded in arresting dozens of uh, Hamas terrorists Mm -hmm. who were, for the first time in years, attempting to uh, um, uh, move forward with uh, a suicide bombing campaign in Jerusalem and other Israeli towns. The fact that those guys were arrested, I, I assume that this happened days before they planned to act, was quite important because this was the most serious attempt by Hamas to lead to a, 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 a quite a severe escalation in the West Bank. And of course, their uh, motive is not only to make Israel bleed and hurt, but also to damage the, the PA's uh, position in the West Bank. Which they did very successfully in May uh, as they escalated. But they tried again in around September mm-hmm. by going back to their original weapon, which is the suicide uh, bomber. This hasn't happened for more than a decade, and there was a good reason why Hamas stopped. They haven't turned uh, Zionist uh, <laughs> suddenly. They just realized that this was um, unacceptable by the West after... Um, um, you know, after the rise of Al-Qaeda and later on ISIS, you saw that the Palestinians gradually, most Palestinian organizations, gradually uh, disengaging themselves from uh, suicide bombing campaigns. I'm not saying that this cannot return under any kind of pressure, but they haven't been using that uh, tactic for quite some time. 
So you're saying that the fact that Hamas was preparing this rather extensive uh, suicide bombing attack is an indication of of what that they're really willing to uh, to escalate further against Israel, against the Palestinian Authority, at least in the West Bank, and that Hamas's leader in Gaza, Yehi Sinwar, who of course was held by the Israelis for 20 years, jailed by the Israelis, and then freed from jail uh, during the Shalit uh, the Shalit deal 10 years ago. That he was willing to risk matters, at least uh, uh, regarding the West Bank. I'm mm-hmm. not so sure that he's willing to um, fight Israel again in Gaza right now. They're still licking their wounds from the the latest round of violence. But as long as this is happening in the West Bank and um, inside Israeli borders in Jerusalem and so on, um, I, I would assume that uh, some of the Hamas leadership was willing to 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 engage in that and to risk escalation. Assuming that in the end this would be um, helpful from Hamas's uh, point of view, and of course damaging for both Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Very interesting, uh, Amos. We're going to transition to a newish segment uh, called "Ask the Forum." Uh, we want to make this podcast a bit more interactive, so we uh, solicit emails from our listeners. Uh, they can write in and ask questions about any issues that interest them. Uh, you can do this by emailing. Uh, policypod at ipforum.org uh, and just let us know if you want to make the questions anonymous and we'll pick the good ones uh, for future episodes. Uh, almost this week we got a bunch of emails regarding one issue and one issue in particular and that is the the rise, the real rise in settler violence, settler terrorism um, in the West Bank against uh, primarily Palestinian civilians and also in certain cases uh, Israeli security uh, officers in the West Bank. So as somebody who covers uh, military affairs here uh, and has for, for many years, why can't the IDF slash the Israel police uh, actually get a grip on this phenomenon of, of settler terrorism in the West Bank? You're assuming that uh, somebody in charge of them actually wants them to act. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. Um, look, uh, settler violence is not new, of course, and it's not. It doesn't involve all settlers. These are mostly the the most extreme, mostly uh, groups of young men, sometimes teenagers, uh, li- living in illegal outpo- outposts outside of the of the older uh, settlements and mm-hmm. a few places in, in the north of the West Bank around the Nablus area, around Ramallah, and also uh, around the Hebron area. Uh, in the past, we've seen cases for two main reasons. One, especially during the Second Intifada, but some incidents uh, later on, had to do with a sense of personal threat. When those people leave, living in illegal outposts felt that there was a danger to their families in those outposts from neighbor, uh, neighboring Palestinian villages and so on, they systematically hit uh, Palestinian targets, so to speak, in order to deter them uh, of um, of um, um, trying anything near the mm-hmm. the outposts, which are usually not defended by, um, you know, uh, not defended defended by fences and and, and walls and uh, so on. Secondly, uh, whenever there was a threat that the government, usually former governments before Netanyahu. Uh, would uh, be pushed to um, um, evacuate some of these illegal outposts. Then they tried hitting Palestinians in order to, again, to deter the government from um, uh, doing so, 
assuming that the government would fear uh, um, a new round of violence and escalation. Mm -hmm. And this worked quite successfully. The, the strange thing right now is that there is no sense of an impending danger regarding terrorist activity. I've mentioned the, the, uh, the issue with Hamas, but other than that, things are not uh, escalating in any way. And also the current government is not intending in, in any way to evacuate those uh, illegal outposts. And, and yet uh, those acts of violence have resumed. And my guess would be that those people feel that they can do anything, that the uh, military and police, that they've been there for so long, that the military and police are helpless, that nobody in government is actually uh, interested in that, that ministers would every now and then, especially ministers from the left, pay lip service to the, the need to, to solve this matter. But other than that, that the government and, and the state are weak and would not uh, um, treat them um, aggressively enough in order to to stop that. And, and this is why this is uh, rising. Uh, at, at the moment, there have been a lot of, of cases, quite a lot of blood has been shed. It's not always violence from the Israeli side. We Sometimes when you read Haaretz, uh, you tend to think that this is that all violence in the West Bank comes from one side against the other. That's mm -hmm. not really the case. And some of these local incidents involve, uh, of course, Palestinian violence uh, as well. But I can say nothing to justify the, the behavior of either the extreme settlers or the, the government dealing with that. I think the police and army have been uh, too passive about this, uh, did not uh, use all their authority to, to try and stop that. And this is why we're... Uh, seeing more and more violence in, in recent weeks and months. Maybe I'm naive, Amos, but I would presume that uh, a centrist defense minister like Benny Gantz and a center-left uh, uh, internal security minister like Omar Barlev from the Labour Party would actually uh, feel the need to, to, get the, to get a grip on this, uh, on this phenomenon and actually stop uh, these extremist settlers from, uh, from attacking Palestinian civilians. But, but again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm naive. Uh, there's always there's always something more urgent uh, to do, and the only time they actually concentrate on that is when something horrific happens. Uh, for instance, the the death of the Dawabsha family in the village of Duma in the summer of 2015. After that, you could see the government actually, uh, for once, uh, becoming more aggressive against those extremists. Other than that, if it, it's about you know, local clashes with somebody wounded every now and then, and perhaps a video, and perhaps some damage to uh, um, cars or houses and so on, uh, the government would do almost nothing. I, I hope that this would change, but I'm not sure. I can't say for for certain that either Gantz or Balev, uh would do that. And Balev, of course, would have the excuse that he's now concentrating on fighting uh, crime among Arab Israelis mm -hmm. and so on. Right. So want to transition here to uh, our last segment, also a new segment called Curation Corner. Uh, as I've said before, there's a lot of content out there in the world. Uh, and what we like to do every week is to highlight our favorite recent pieces, articles, books, TV shows, or any other piece of content uh, for you, our listeners, to check out. Um, this week, I want to highlight a poll of Israeli public opinion that was uh, released by the Israel Democracy Institute a few weeks ago. Uh, it has to do with a lot of issues on the new government's agenda, uh, but to my mind, the most interesting thing is really uh, the poll about how the Israeli public views the Iran issue, um, which we talked about extensively at the top of this episode. Uh, the results of the poll showed 
and almost this isn't going to be a surprise to you, that 51% of Jewish Israelis think that a military attack on Iran at the early stages of its nuclear development is preferable to attempts to reach a settlement, i.e. a deal. Um, obviously, Arab Israelis uh, think almost the opposite, uh, but really the, the Jewish majority in Israel, 51%, uh, solidly thinks that uh, a military attack is arguably preferable than a nuclear deal. Um, that's not a surprise to you, Amos, is it? After years of Netanyahu telling the Israeli public that uh, the Iranians are Nazis and that the old Iranian nuclear program was like the Munich Agreement. Not really, although I think that, you know, uh, if the Israeli governments uh, g- um, understand uh, their uh, role, uh, then they have to speak uh, more openly to the public. Mm-hmm. And uh, people here, it's, it's not going to be a decision for the public anyway. But I think that people who are supportive of an Israeli unilateral uh, strike against Iran should be um, completely aware of the possible and likely consequences, which would mean war with Hezbollah, which would mean thousands of rockets and missiles launched at the Israeli uh, home front. And this is this is a big deal. This is nothing um, of the sort we've encountered uh, before. And um, I, I think that any government which would finally uh, deal with that dilemma would have to consider the, the possible outcome. And, and you have to remember, Netanyahu uh, was uh, discussing a possibility of a strike every spring and summer between 2009 and 2013. Mm-hmm. And it never happened. You can say, okay, the, the, um, the army was not in full capability. A strike would not have delayed the Iranians too much and so on. But in the end, it was Netanyahu himself who, in spite of all this public uh, tough rhetoric... He never pulled the trigger. And I think it has to do with the fact that even Netanyahu was perfectly aware of the possible outcome. Right. Uh, I think uh, a future war, like we talked about earlier with Lebanon and then Iran, uh, would be a, a very different scenario than what we've seen uh, even with the campaigns in Gaza and uh, and the second Lebanon war. Um, you know, People have told me that it, it, it'll likely be the worst Middle East war since 1973. Um, Amos, Last question for you as part of Curation Corner. Um, really curious for you to explain to uh, to our listeners about your own work uh, as a military correspondent for Aretz, uh, Israeli journalism and media. It's really interesting, at least to my mind, that you have political reporters, you have diplomatic reporters, uh, you have police reporters, health reporters. But I think almost above a cut, a cut above the rest is the military correspondent because uh, you guys have to uh, be involved in many different things all at once. Uh, we saw it this morning in your column for Haaretz that you're talking about uh, high diplomacy with the United States and Rob Malley being in Israel. You're talking about uh, Lebanon. You're talking about the Palestinians. You're talking about Gaza. So take us uh, behind the curtain, if you will, and explain uh, how you go about doing your work, let's say on a day-to-day basis. Well, I, I have to admit that uh, that I, I have, in fact, been doing this for ages. Mm-hmm. And whenever cause somebody calls me a veteran like you did in the beginning, I'm slightly surprised. And then I I'm, remind myself that I've been doing this for more than 20 years. So perhaps I'm a veteran uh, by now. Term of endearment. Look, there's never a, there's never a dull moment here. It's um, especially military uh, affairs. The country is, is focused on 
security threats for many, many years. And unfortunately, you know, we've been through just if I, you know, quickly think over the, the stuff I've covered since I was uh, um, appointed in the late 90s, 1997 to, to Haaretz as military correspondent. And later on, uh, after Zev Shiv passed away, I became um, um, uh, Haaretz as senior defense analyst or whatever you'd like to call that. You know, I've been through um, um, this Israeli disengagement from Lebanon and Gaza, a war in Lebanon, um, second intifada for five or six years in Gaza and the West Bank, different military operations, four or five in Gaza, and and a lot more, the Iranian issue and so on. Um, the fact that I'm defined, my work is defined as uh, as an analyst means that I I, I do in fact need uh, to deal with all of these matters that you mentioned. It's not only about uh, the IDF's uh, preparedness for war with Hezbollah. It's also about strategic situation between Israel and the United States, uh, the, the conflict, the ongoing conflict with Iran and so on. Mostly it's quite interesting. I don't think that it's the number one most important issue in Israel always. I think that if COVID has sort of taught us anything, it's the fact that the there are civilian concerns that Israel should uh, concentrate on and not only think of preparations for for war. Look at the the health system, look at schools, look at all of the dangers and the damages that the pandemic has mm-hmm. brought here. And Israel, you know, all things considered, probably did better than many other countries. Uh, so it's not all about defense, but defense is a major issue here, and also the. Something that I find very, very interesting for years is the relationship between the the country, the state, and its army. The fact that there is a mandatory service here, the fact that most people, most Israeli families, or Jewish families at least, send their boys and girls to serve. Mm -hmm. It's mandatory. It's compulsory at, at age 18. It affects everything in everyday life. So I, I I keep finding this extremely interesting, and this is why I've been doing this uh, for all those uh, years. Uh, one, um, you know, uh, one thing that um, is an advantage, and you know that because you have been in Israel for quite some time, and you, and you cover Israeli affairs, is that Israel the access is here is much easier, I think, than in most countries. This is something informal about almost everything. And once, especially if you speak Hebrew like you do, um, you can talk to almost anybody. You know, Americans are fond of saying that there are six degrees of separation. In Israel, I think there's one layer of separation. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody would probably take your call at least on a second or third time. So this is, uh, sometimes I, I, I talk to foreign correspondents who arrive here, and after a few years, they say, well, this is heaven for journalists. You have access to almost everybody. It's not that you know everything and you have to keep reminding yourself that you don't know everything. Uh, but things are happening all the time and most people are willing to talk about them. So this is, you know, this is interesting. And again, I, we, we, without being too uh, bombastic about this, I, I still think that our work is quite important. I think that the, the country is in, you know, there's a constant sense of some kind of threat. I think in recent years it was most uh, mostly domestic, more right. than it was from the outside. I think that the greatest concern I had was about Israeli the stability of Israeli democracy in Netanyahu's final years. But I think journalism, working in journalism in Israel, if you know, if you take it seriously, like Haaretz does, I think that it's I wouldn't say it's a mission, but it's it's still quite an important uh, role. It's quite a contribution. 
uh, to the Israeli public as long as they want to read and listen and watch. Not everybody wants to do that. Right. And I think uh, on that note, everybody uh, listening to this podcast and in general uh, should read your work, Amos. Uh, it's a must read for me every time I see your byline uh, on the Haaretz homepage, uh, like this morning. So uh, in terms of Curation Corner and what we recommend, uh, we highly recommend your work, Amos. Um, before we sign off, I'd just like to thank Jacob Gilman, uh, who produces this podcast, and to all of you who uh, support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast. You know who you are, and remember uh, to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Amos, thank you so much for taking the time and for a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me.